You're right, Jim. We have a full lesson today. And when I started studying last night, I added to it. And that wasn't a good thing. <laughs> so buckle your seatbelts and we're going to fly today. <laughs> fly through God's word. Uh, I told Daniel, I said, each one of these is, is a sermon. But uh, when I was done studying, I came up with more than five. So now we're really in trouble. So our Sabbath school lesson this morning is on unity in faith. And I love the fact that it goes through really the pillars of the Seventh-day Adventist faith. And, uh, of course, it only had time to go through five of them. But uh, I would like to propose to you that there's eight. You think we can get through eight today? <laughs> there's plenty more, right? Um, but uh, these are the foundation pillars of our faith. And on these, I think all the other 19 are based. Um, so why don't we open with a word of prayer? Our precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these pillars of our faith that you have given to us, these stable supports that are based on your word and in you. And Lord, I just ask as we delve into these now that you will teach us what you would have us to learn, that uh, we may be able to understand you more fully and be drawn together closer to one another and to be able to share our faith more fully with others. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, I am going to add three more to the Sabbath school lesson. So I take the five that are in the Sabbath school lesson, which are what? First one was salvation. Second one was what? Second coming. Third one was sanctuary, right? Third one was Sabbath. Thursdays was state of the dead, right? They all start with S. Did you notice that? Salvation, second coming, sanctuary, Sabbath, and state of the dead. They all start with S. And we're going to add three more S's. Is that okay? Uh, so what I want to go through today is basically the eight S uh, pillars of our faith. And then what I want to talk about is one Bible story that illustrates each one of those eight. So we're going to look at eight Bible stories today, okay? Um, because, you know, oftentimes as Adventists, we like our proof texts, right? Aren't we good at those? I mean, if someone says, what do you believe about the state of the dead? What's the first verse that you would tell them? Ecclesiastes 9.5, right? That's, that's kind of like our proof text that we kind of hang on, right? Living know they shall die and the dead don't know anything, right? If, if someone said the Sabbath, what's your, what's the one text that you would tell them? John 14. Okay. If you love me, keep my commandments. What were you going to say? Exodus 28 through 11, right? Um, if, uh, I mentioned second coming, what's the text that you would tell them? First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, right? Uh, if I mentioned, um, the sanctuary, what would you, what's your, what's your text? What would you tell them? Daniel 8, 14, okay. Someone else. Hebrews 8, okay. I like that, Micah. You had a whole chapter instead of a verse. My, my whole point of this exercise was we often have our little text, right? 
when people say, what do you believe about this? We like to say, well, here is a Bible text of one verse that answers that question. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Bible text, right? Uh, but what I want to share with you is a broader picture. I want to expand your horizons so that when someone says, what do you think about this, whether it's the second coming or the state of the dead or the Sabbath or whatever it is, so you can be back, lean back and say, let me tell you a story. Okay? Now, you know I like stories. So I'm going to give you eight stories today uh, to share your faith with others. So the first one that we're going to talk about is actually not in our lesson. But I believe it's the most important of all of them. And I understand why they didn't have time to put it in the lesson. But the first one is our source of authority. Of course, 2 Timothy 2.16 is great. But no, we're going for a story, okay? So uh, now the reason why source of, source of authority is so important, because if you can't prove that your source of authority is based in God's word, then none of the others make any sense, right? So let's turn to the book of Luke. And uh, obviously, I'm going to have to truncate these stories because I could spend a whole hour on each one of these easily. Um, but in order to get all of these eight stories in a Sabbath school lesson, I'm going to have to like just tell a little bit of the story. But uh, in Luke chapter 24, we find two very lonely men who has just seen Jesus crucified, and they are so discouraged that their heart is down below their feet, right? Uh, we're looking at verse 13, uh, the story of the walk to Emmaus. These two men are walking home, unsure about this whole weekend's events, right? The, the man, the Messiah that they thought was the Messiah, who they thought was the Christ, had been crucified, was killed, and now there are all kinds of crazy reports circulating some say his disciples, which would include them, stole his body and, and hid it somewhere, which they know they didn't. Some say that he raised from the dead. Some day that he just ma say he magically disappeared. Well, they know someone must have stolen his body because it was obviously gone. Um, or they're not really sure what happened. And so here they are just discouraged walking back home. And all of a sudden, a stranger joins them. And as he joins them, he he notices that they're all down in the dumps. And he's like, what's wrong? What, why are you so sad? And they start telling him all the events of the week. Like, what's wrong with you? I mean, everybody in this whole area knows what's happened this weekend. And so they start telling him all the events of the weekend and everything. And this stranger answers them. And we're going to look at verse 25. He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at what? Moses and all the prophets. Now I got to turn to the next page of my Bible. He expounded to them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Okay, so where is our source of authority? Where was Jesus' own source of authority? 
the Old Testament. You know, this is specifically for these New Testament Christians, right? We believe in the New Testament, you know, forget about the old because Jesus did away with it. Well, this is after Jesus' resurrection. And where did he begin? He began at Moses. Jesus, after his resurrection, did not do away with the Old Testament. He simply showed how the Old Testament prophesied everything about himself. Okay, so our source of authority is all of Scripture because there's very few people who dispute the New Testament. Obviously, the New Testament is Jesus uh, personified, per, personified, and uh, the Old Testament is Jesus foretold, right? So the entire Bible is our source of authority. How do you like that? Isn't it nice to be able to share a story about your faith? All right, let's go to the next one. The next one is... Sunday's lesson, which is what? Salvation, right? Because without salvation, you don't have anything. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's nothing to be grateful for. Without salvation, we're lost, right? We're sunk. Um, So that is obviously the second most important. If you were to tell a story about salvation rather than a proof text, because for proof text, what do we go to for salvation? Come on. John 3.16, right? I mean, <laughs> we all know that verse, right? <laughs> Salvation, John 3.16. But I propose to you, instead of using John 3.16, tell the story of John chapter 3. Let's turn there. John chapter 3 is one of the most powerful chapters on salvation that there ever was. Because it begins with a Pharisee. A Pharisee who was afraid to tell anyone that he was interested in Jesus, afraid to tell anyone that his heart was being convicted by Jesus' words. And so he sneaks out in the middle of the night when nobody's looking, walks down the most deserted streets where he knows that nobody will be peeking out their windows, and goes out into the woods to find Jesus' hideout in the middle of the night because he knows that Jesus will be there praying. He's kind of got informants who have informed uh, him Jesus' whereabouts at night through his disciples. And so he simply shows up in the woods and he tells Jesus, verse 2, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these miracles that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus read his heart. He knew that even though Nicodemus' well-thought, well-worded pronouncement as he first arrives in Jesus' presence, we know that you must be from God because no one could do miracles unless they were, is really his pharisaical form of flattery to Jesus, right? But Jesus goes straight to his heart. And Jesus says to him, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Jesus proceeds to show Nicodemus what it means to be born again. What it truly means to die to self, to give up what we want to do, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. He paints a picture of the Holy Spirit, how we cannot see him, right? Just like the wind that blows. You cannot see the wind, but you see the trees blowing through the in the breeze. You see the limbs moving and the leaves uh, going, but you can't see the wind. He says, so is everyone that's born of the Spirit. You can't see the Holy Spirit working in my heart, 
or your heart, but you can see the effects in a changed life. And uh, then Jesus gave his greatest prophecy to Nicodemus in John 3, 14 through 17. And I want to look at, I want to read all the way through 14 through 17. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now that's referring back to the time in Israel when they were being bitten by snakes and Moses put up a pole with a a bronze serpent on it. And if they looked at that snake, they would be healed from their snake bite. It says, as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you know, Nicodemus clung to that promise. He clung to it so hard, and he did everything he could in his power from that day on, without being an open disciple of Jesus, to save Jesus from being killed. And time after time, he he used his authority as a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin to prevent them from killing Jesus. And when at the very end, when Jesus was killed, it was because Nicodemus was not called to come to the Sanhedrin that morning. But when Nicodemus saw Jesus on that cross, all of the disciples, all the 12, his 12 closest, well, 11 closest disciples, Uh, all but Judas, and all of his other close disciples, including the two men at Emmaus that we just talked about, when they saw Jesus on the cross, their hopes were dashed. But Nicodemus's were not. Because the first thing Nicodemus remembered was this verse in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Nicodemus believed. And Nicodemus was one of the first disciples excuse me, he was willing to be open about his faith in Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection, even before any of the disciples were willing to come out of hiding in their locked room. That's what salvation is. Salvation is Jesus being willing to die on the cross to save us so that we can experience a new birth in him, a death to ourselves, a death to we want to do, a new creation in Christ filled with the Holy Spirit that we may be empowered to live a new life. And that's all found in John chapter three. Isn't that beautiful? The stories that God has given us. So let's look at the the third one. And the third one is actually Monday's lesson. And that is what? Second coming. Now we talked about this. What What is our proof text for the second coming? Someone said it earlier. First Thessalonians, right? First Thessalonians 4, that's kind of one we always think of, right? First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. But I want to tell you, there's a bigger picture to this one too. I propose that you use the whole book of First Thessalonians. I want to tell you a little bit about the Thessalonian believers. The, Thess- the believers in the town of Thessalonica, which is where the Thessalonian people came from, uh, the believers in the town of Thessalonica, when they received Paul's writings, or I should say Paul's personal teachings, when he came and he established a church there, they got really excited. 
they had some of their, their key members of their church pass away shortly after Paul left. And their only hope was in the second coming of Christ. And they firmly believed that the second coming of Christ was going to happen within one year in their lifetime. That's what they believed. And, uh, their, their absolute mistake was that they didn't understand the resurrection. So they believed that these wonderful leaders in their church who had just passed away were not going to experience the second coming of Christ because they, they died too soon. And so they, they were all crying and weeping because, uh, they really wanted their special friends and brothers in Christ to be with them and be raised with them and meet them in the clouds when Jesus came. And so Paul in his first epistle of the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, actually talks about the second coming in every single chapter. And uh, I love this because it's like the entire book is dedicated to the second coming, not just chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, but every single chapter. So let's look at uh, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. Okay, so his first mention is, you have died to self, you've gotten rid of all the idols, you've turned to God, and you are waiting for Jesus to come in heaven. Okay, that's his first mention. If you go to uh, chapter 2, and you look at uh, verses 18 and 19. Isn't that beautiful? He says, Our hope, this is Paul speaking, our hope and our crown of rejoicing is that you will be with us at Jesus' second coming, that we can bring you along uh, at Jesus' second coming. And of course, he continues on, and then you do get to uh, chapter 4. I'm going to skip chapter 3, but chapter 3, if you want to make a note, is actually verses 12 and 13. Actually, I'm going to read that to you. Let's look at 3. 3, 12, and 13. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So Paul is saying, God wants you to be pure blameless and holy and he is the one who will establish you and keep you to Christ's second coming and then he goes to chapter four and this is kind of like his crowning work here where it's our familiar verses Um, but let's start at verse 13 he says I do not want you to be ignorant brethren concerning those who have fallen asleep he's specifically referring to those brethren who had just recently passed away says, do not sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So those who are asleep right now will also be resurrected to see Jesus come. And you find that in the next um, verses. In verse 15, I say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, those who are still alive when Jesus comes, will by no means go before those who are asleep. At, and then he continues, The Lord himself will ascend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of archangel and a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ 
will rise first. You can only imagine the joy of the Thessalonian believers as they realize that their depart, their dead, uh, brethren in the church would actually be raised first before they even went and joined them in the air. And then he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Just a beautiful picture of God's love and what he wants to do for all of his children, not just those who are alive when he comes, but those who die before he comes as well. So we covered the second coming of Christ. And obviously, um, you know, when I'm sharing about the second coming, I don't want to like, first off, just start bashing what they believe about the second coming, whether they believe in the secret rapture or whether they believe in uh, uh, a coming that, you know, there, there's all different views about the second coming of Christ. But if you present the truth in love, the truth will speak for itself and there's no need to bash them on what they believe. So uh, our third one is Tuesday's lesson. What's that? The sanctuary, right? So, Micah, you are amazing on that. You said Hebrews 8. I'm going to expand that just slightly. We're going to say Hebrews 8 and 9. So let's go to Hebrews 8 and 9. Hebrews 8 and 9 pictures an amazing story of our personal high priest. The one who is there in heaven just for us to intercede in our behalf just for us and obviously because of time we don't have time to look at all of the verses in hebrews 8 and 9 but i want to look at just um verses uh for right now let's look at verses 8 excuse me chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 as we go through the chapter of hebrews 8 and 9 we have a full story of the earthly sanctuary in the time of Moses that Moses built specifically after the pattern that he saw in heaven. And then how Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary right now, interceding with God so that we can be forgiven. And how the reason that Jesus can be our high priest is because he was the one who made us and he was the one who lived a perfect life on this earth and then died on the cross for our sins, taking the role of that lamb that was slain in the earthly sanctuary. And because of it, he is the one who can intercede with God in our behalf because he died for us. And there he is in heaven right now. So what is uh, Wednesday's lesson? Like I said, I'm flying through this. I could do a whole sermon on each one of these easily. <laughs> Wednesdays is the Sabbath. That's number five. Number five is the Sabbath. Now, if you were going to tell someone a story about the Sabbath, where would you find it? Genesis? Okay. That's a good story. Where else? There's a lot of them. Anybody else? If you were to tell someone a story about the Sabbath, where would you tell it? Where would you find it? Exodus 20, okay. So you would tell the story of, G of God giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, right? 
and dad says Genesis because he would tell the story of creation of the world, which is one of my favorite stories for, for the Sabbath is tell the story of creation. What else? These are all good answers. Keep thinking. There's more. The manna, the story of the manna in the wilderness, right? Where the manna fell twice as much on Friday and it actually kept through Sabbath. None fell on Sabbath. And if you tried to pick to collect extra on Monday and keep it to Tuesday, it would grow worms. All right. What other stories? There's more. What's that? Hebrews about the rest, right? Okay. That's a good one, although uh, the evangelicals use that same one to prove that the Lord's Day is Sunday, so that's a little scary one to use. <laughs> Any others? As if custom was. Okay, and that was Jesus, right? That's what you, okay, so the stories of Jesus. What about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, right? And how he shared that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, right? That would all fit in that. So I'm going to share with you one none of you have said yet. How's that? Let's go to the book of Acts. And the reason, and all those stories that you mentioned are absolutely marvelous. Um, and every single one could be used as a story to tell about the Sabbath. The reason I chose this one in Acts particularly is because it is a story that happened after the resurrection of Jesus, right? So let's look at Acts um, chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 42 through 45. I'm actually going to tell you a little bit more about the whole chapter of Acts 13, because that's kind of where it starts. It starts at verse 1. Um, the story of Acts chapter 13 you find that Paul has just come to Antioch. And uh, the story is beautiful. Um, and of course, anytime he went to Newtown, the first thing he always did was he gave the Jews a chance. And then when they rejected it, then he'd go to the Gentiles. So, of course, in verse 1, we find that uh, he goes to the Jews on Sabbath. Well, that's nothing unusual because the Jews only met together on Sabbath. It's the only way he would have found Jews, right? Whether or not he kept the Sabbath or not, he would go to the synagogue on Sabbath to talk to Jews. So here he is, and in this chapter of Acts 13, you have an amazing sermon, word for word, of what Paul shared with the believers in the synagogue on Sabbath morning to the Jews. And at the end of his sermon... There is absolutely no response from the Jews. Uh, no, uh, we find in verse 42, so after he finishes his sermon, the Jews went out of the synagogue. It doesn't really say that they enjoyed it, received the word or anything. They just kind of like, okay, whatever, that was a nice sermon. They left, okay? But what happens here in verse 42? When the Jews went out of the synagogue, the who? The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached when? They didn't say tomorrow, did they? <laughs> Paul, when you do your Gentile preaching on Sunday morning, uh, you know, we want to listen. <laughs> they didn't say that. They said, Paul, we want to hear you next Sabbath. Not in the synagogue, not on the Jews' day, but we want to hear you. Us Gentiles want to hear you next Sabbath. It's very important for you to notice this. 
So now, uh, verse 43, now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So you actually see some of the Jews embraced Paul's words. Not all of them rejected it. Some of them kept it. And then in verse 44, on the next Sabbath, who came? The whole town. <laughs> the next Sabbath, then to almost the entire city came to hear the word of God. And that's when you see in verse 45, the Jews were jealous and they rejected Paul's message, except those few who had embraced the truth. So Paul and Barnabas kept the seventh-day Sabbath, not because they were ministering to Jews, but because it was the Sabbath. And uh, as a result, the church that they planted in Antioch kept the Sabbath. And if you look at the history of the church in Antioch, the church in Antioch kept the Sabbath far into the Middle Ages until um, the Catholic Church finally came in and basically destroyed all the Christians in the city who were keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. So just from the story of Antioch, you have a beautiful story of the disciples keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath after the resurrection of Jesus. All right, let's look at the next one. The next one is Thursday's lesson, which is what? State of the dead. All right, so we've covered source of authority, salvation, second coming, sanctuary, Sabbath, and now we are on the state of the dead. We already talked about our proof text for the state of the dead, right? Someone said, we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes 9.5, which is like one verse. And let me tell you the challenge with using that verse. It's, it's an amazing text, right? The living know they shall die. The dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. The challenge with using that as your proof text for the state of the dead, it's fine to use as a text, but as your number one proof text is the context of the chapter. The context of the chapter is that life is meaningless and has no end, uh, excuse me, not no end, has an end and there's no hope afterwards. Okay? <laughs> Which is not really the message of the entire Bible. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, really this treatise that Solomon gives on the worthlessness of life. Okay? So to use that in that context of the chapter as your one proof text um, really doesn't give you a lot to stand on. So what I propose to you is to tell a story again. And this story is found in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we're back in Jesus again. I'm sure this is all a familiar story to you, so I'm not going to tell you all the details. But uh, John chapter 11, Jesus has a very close family that are like his own family. I mean, he's closer to them than his own mother and his brothers and sisters. And that is the family of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And he would love to go to their house as a retreat when he was, 
when he would just get so tired of the the scribes and Pharisees watching his every movement and and uh, trying to look for every word he said to to accuse him of something. You know that gets tiring after a while to everyone, and including Jesus. He was human too, and uh, so when he needed a break from that, he would go to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and just rest. And there he could be himself. There he could tell the truth without worrying about being reported. There he could just simply expound the scriptures to people who were hungry for it. People who weren't just listening to him because they wanted healing or that they wanted something um, or they wanted to make him king or anything like that. He could just be himself and share the word. And here we find in chapter 11, that Lazarus becomes very ill, very ill. And so, of course, Mary and Martha, knowing how close Jesus was to Lazarus, they sent him a message just simply saying, Lazarus is very sick. They didn't say, Jesus, you got to come right now. We want you to come. We need you instantly. They didn't. They just simply sent a message that says Lazarus is sick, and they trusted him to do the right thing. They trusted that he was the Messiah, that he was God, and that he would know the best thing to do in this situation. So the message just simply said, Lazarus is sick. Well, the disciples read everything in that message, and they're like, Jesus, we got to go right now. <laughs> Let, let's, let's start, because it's going to take us a while to get there, and you know, Lazarus can't be sick if you're around. But Jesus didn't go. He stayed in that same place for a couple more days, knowing that Lazarus was very sick. This wasn't just a common cold that Lazarus had, or they wouldn't have sent a message to Jesus to tell him. This was a serious illness to the point of death. But Jesus had a message from his own father telling him to wait, because this act of raising Lazarus from the dead would be his crowning act, his final giant miracle to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to Israel that he was God before his crucifixion. And uh, so he waited two days, and then finally he says to the disciples, okay, let's go. And they're kind of like, why'd you wait so long, Jesus? What's wrong with you? Do you, you? You realize that Lazarus has been very sick and you've waited two days before trying to go to him? And Jesus says to him, to them in verse 11, he says, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And the disciples, well, they totally didn't understand what Jesus says, right? Because in the next verse, he says, his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. That's marvelous that he's asleep. Why, why are you going to wake him up? That's going to ruin his recovery process. <laughs> However, verse 13, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So what is death to Jesus? It is a sleep. It's a beautiful sleep. Because it's not eternal death. Eternal death happens when Jesus comes the third time, right? When he comes and he burns the entire world in fire and creates a new heaven and new earth. That is 
death, eternal death forever. But death to a Christian now is only asleep. Asleep, a rest in Jesus until he comes, like we learned about the second coming when the Thessalonian church, when he comes to wake us up and raise us to life. Isn't that beautiful? All right, let's look at our next one. This one's my favorite one. I hope I saved enough time for it. Welcome! So glad you were here. So our next one obviously is not in the lesson. Any guesses what it might be? Except my mom and dad can't guess because they probably know. Any guesses as to another pillar of the Seventh-day Adventist Church that we haven't mentioned yet on the board? We have source of authority, salvation, second coming, sanctuary, Sabbath, state of the dead. Any guesses? It starts with an S, spirit of prophecy. Before I go into uh, the Bible story on this, I want to read you something that uh, we read last night on this topic, and I really, really liked it. And it was, the question was, what is the definition of a prophet? And I want to share this with you. I know my parents heard it last night because they were at our house when we read it. But uh, it was fascinating. What is a prophet? The The prevalent popular notion is that a prophet is one who predicts things. Consequently, he is thought to be some kind of sanctified gypsy. As a result, delusions have played havoc within Christian communities. Have you ever thought about that? Like, what is actually a prophet? Is this, is it some kind of, you know, glorified strange person that, you know, has just got this, these magical prophetic interpretation powers and whatever can predict the future? From the Bible's point of view, a prophet is one who teaches under the direct influence of God with a predictive ability to aid in proclaiming the moral purposes of God. Isn't that beautiful? A prophet of God is a flesh and blood mortal whom God uses. Some people say that a prophet is inspired of God, but this can be very misleading because the word inspiration can mean just about anything. The prophets of the Bible were not people who spoke and wrote merely from pious reflection. This is a popular idea today, but prophets of God were and are men and women moved by the Holy Spirit. I love that. So with that in mind, let's look at the spirit of prophecy from a story. Turn to the book of Second Chronicles. This is probably the most uh, unique way of teaching the spirit of prophecy that uh, I have ever learned, and I absolutely love it. Second Chronicles, and we're going to start at chapter 18. And there's actually three stories, which makes this really hard because of our time. I promise I'm going to fly through them again. Okay, in Second Chronicles chapter 18, you have the story of King Jehoshaphat, who is the king of Judah, and King Ahab, who is the king of Israel. And King Ahab says to King Jehoshaphat, I want you 
to come over and join forces with me so we can destroy our enemies together. King Jehoshaphat says, sure, I'll come. So he comes and he brings his army with him, comes into the land of Israel. And of course, we know about all about King Ahab, right? I mean, he's the one that uh, Elijah said that it would not rain for three years because he was his whole realm was filled with idolatry, you know. And this is later on in Ahab's life. You think King Ahab would learn by now, but uh, just before they're ready to join their forces and actually head out, King Jehoshaphat, who was actually a very godly man, he says to King Ahab, "Wait a second, before we leave, let's ask God's will about this thing first. He, he's got some hesitations here. He says, I want to know what God's will is. So King Ahab calls in how many prophets? Anyone know? 400. 400. It's 18 verse 5. King Ahab calls in 400 prophets. And he says, okay, you prophets of the Lord, tell me, should we go and uh, are we going to prosper? Are we going to win this war or should we not go? And what do they all say? Go. You're going to prosper, right? Absolutely, everything's going to happen. And King Jehoshaphat is thinking to himself, how does King Ahab have 400 prophets of God? Are these really prophets of God? (laughs) So he says to King Ahab, well, okay, verse 6, is there not still a prophet of the Lord here (laughs) that we can inquire of him? And King Ahab says, yeah, there's one. And I hate him because he never says anything good about me at all. (laughs) But King Jehoshaphat is like, I want to actually hear from God himself. I want to hear from a prophet of the Lord. So call him in and I want to hear what he says. And of course, the prophet of God said exactly what King Ahab thought he would. Uh, He says in the end, and of course this is truncating the story quite a bit. He says, if you go to war, Israel... the." Israel, the nation of Israel, will be as sheep without a shepherd because the king will die. And somehow, King Ahab, of course, did not believe that at all, but he kind of believed it a little bit. And he threw the prophet in prison and said, he's going to eat bread and water until I come back in peace. Because that's not going to happen, and we're going to go to war anyway. So King Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat to go to war against his conscience, against the prophet's advice, And then they get out to battle, and King Ahab says, Oh, by the way, uh, King Jehoshaphat, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to dress as a common soldier, and you're going to dress like the king. (laughs) Now, that should have been a serious red flag to Jehoshaphat, right? Because obviously, uh, the prophet predicted that the king would die. (laughs) And uh, who was the one dressed as the king? Jehoshaphat. You know, he was the only king there. So... um, King Ahab was trying to thwart God's plans a little bit. And it actually, you know, the fact Jehoshaphat actually went along with it blows my mind. But, you know, sometimes when you get so far, pride gets in the way. And I've I've given my word to the king of Israel. I'm not going to turn back now, even though God says I should. And so he went along with it. And just in the heat of battle, some soldiers came up and aimed all their bow and arrows at uh, King Jehoshaphat because they thought he was the king of Israel. And King Jehoshaphat knew what was going on and he hollered out, I'm not the king of Israel. (laughs) And God in his mercy 
had those soldiers dropped their weapons and King Jehoshaphat was spared. And of course, we know the end of the story. Even though King Ahab was uh, dressed like a common soldier, an arrow got to him and he died that night. And Israel was without a king, exactly as the prophet of God predicted. So King Jehoshaphat comes home very uh, thoughtful. And in chapter 19, he's met at the door of his palace by another prophet, a prophet in Judah, who tells him, that he had sinned by going against uh, the Syria with uh, King Ahab and doing everything that he had done going against the word of the Lord. And as a result, he would be punished. So uh, in response, Jehoshaphat repents to God, humbles his heart before God, works serious reforms in the land of Israel, and then God gives him another test. He says, will you trust my prophets? And so uh, in chapter 20, we find that uh, the king of Ammon, the king of Moab, and the king of Mount Seir, which is actually the the descendants of Esau, uh, came, all three of them, banded all their forces together and came against Judah. And here Jehoshaphat is with just the tribe of Judah, his army is very small and this huge army coming after him. And it's amazing what he does. He gathers all of Judah together at the temple and he prays to God for help. And as he's praying, God gave him a test. It's very fascinating. Have you ever noticed who the prophet was that answered in response to his prayer? He was a member of the choir. Okay, I want you to look at this. This is in verse 14. The spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. Who were the sons of Asaph? They were the singers, right? You've got the children of Korah and the children of Asaph. They were the singers. You find in the Psalms, a lot of the Psalms were written for the sons of Asaph. So a member of the choir becomes a prophet. I guarantee you he's never been a prophet before. But God came to a member of the choir. And he speaks up and says, King Jehoshaphat, I have a message from God. Now Jehoshaphat has to face a test now. Is he going to believe the choir? Is this really the word of God? Is this really a true prophet? And he chose to believe it. And of course, we know the story. Uh, the next day, let's look at verse 20. The next day, he got everybody out to battle. And he says to them, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets. And so shall you prosper. And then, guess who he put in the front of the army? The choir. I almost wonder if he did that on purpose because it's like, probably that guy was, <laughs> that, that had the message from God, he was probably in the front. <laughs> Do you believe your own message? <laughs> but God worked a miracle for them, didn't he? And totally destroyed those armies 
verses 22 and 23, the armies destroyed themselves. And when that army arrived with the singers to the field of battle, everybody was dead. Believing the prophets is so important. All right, our time is uh, up, so we're going to do the last one really quick. The last one is standards or sanctification, however you want to call it. I like to call it standards of Christian living. And I'd like you to turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And really, it's the whole chapter. But uh, we don't have time for that, so we're just going to read a couple verses. Someone wanted to read 1 John 3, verses 18 through 22. And we will end with this. So why do we keep the standards that God has given us? Because if we are truly converted... Right? If we are born again as Christians, if the Holy Spirit is filling our lives, we will want to do those things that are pleasing in God's sight. We will want to live and behave and dress and eat and all those things as children of God because we love Him. And because we love Him, we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Isn't that beautiful? So, quick review. What was the story for Source of Authority? The walk to Emmaus. The story for salvation was Nicodemus, right? The story of the second coming was the Thessalonian church, right? The Thessalonian church. The story of the sanctuary is Jesus, our high priest, right? The story of salvation in Hebrews. Uh, the story, the story for the Sabbath was that Nicodemus was salvation. The Sabbath Paul, Paul in the church of Antioch, right? Preaching to the Gentiles. Story for the state of the dead. Lazarus. Story of the spirit of prophecy. Jehoshaphat. And standards of Christian living comes from John. Isn't that beautiful? Rather than just giving a little proof text for each thing that we believe. Now, obviously, I don't recommend doing that whole Bible study in one sitting <laughs> like we just did. But I want to give you an example. If someone comes to you and says, what do you believe on this topic? You have a story to share. 